Well, good morning again. Would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that you have indeed gathered us together here this morning, that we might hear from your word, that we might understand your ways, that we might know your heart. And so, Lord, as we begin to take a look at this book of Romans together, Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts and minds to receive the message that you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as I said at the beginning of this service, we are in a new series in the book of Romans. And I actually remember the first time that I read through the book of Romans. Uh, it was the summer between my junior and my senior year in high school. I had just become a Christian that Christmas beforehand, and I had really started reading through the scriptures. And on this particular day, I was riding downtown on the Metra uh, with uh, members of our youth group at our church. I forget why we were going into the city. I can't remember that, but I do remember the train ride. I remember sitting on the second level with the sun kind of pouring in at my back as we're zipping by all the suburbs, and I'm sitting there on that upper level of the train car with the book of Romans open in my lap. I have this student Bible, and I'm reading through this, uh, this letter that Paul has written, and I'm reading all the footnotes, and I have a pen in hand as I'm underlining and as I'm writing furiously in the margins questions and thoughts that stand out to me. And the reason why I'm doing this is because I had been captivated by this book. That as I read through the book of Romans, I was amazed and in awe of the beauty, power, generosity, and love of God. It was in the book of Romans that I heard such memorable verses like Romans 5.8. And this is how we know God loves us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was in Romans chapter 8 where I heard about how neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation could separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And I just could not stop reading. While my fellow students were goofing around on the train car, there I was with scripture open in my lap and I couldn't do anything else. I'd been captivated by this book. I was struck by it in much the same way Martin Luther had been struck by the book of Romans. When he wrote this, he said, this letter is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is a bright light, almost sufficient to illuminate the entire Holy Scriptures. And I remember sitting there reading through this letter and feeling like all the pieces were falling into place. In fact, Luther was so enamored with this book that he said it should be required that every single Christian memorize it from beginning to end. That's how amazing the book of Romans is. And that's part of the reason why we are taking the entire summer to study it. We're in this series that we are calling Romans, the, greatest, uh, the gospel's greatest hits. And the reason why we're calling it that is because that really is what this book is about. Within it, we find one of the clearest uh, summaries of the Christian faith. We find the gospel described using beautiful images that bring clarity and depth and understanding. And so what we are going to be doing over the next several months is we are just going to be preaching through this book beginning to end. We're going to do the whole book in order. 
Um, each weekend when you come uh, to service, we're going to have a couple of key verses and a theme that we'll be preaching on, and we're using something that we're calling expository preaching. Expository preaching is, a, is an approach to preaching that's a little bit different from thematic preaching. Thematic preaching kind of picks a topic and then looks at the whole of Scripture and finds all the verses in the Bible that talk about that particular topic. And that's what some of the things that we do from time to time, but expository preaching does something different. It says, I'm going to stick with this one text this one passage, and I'm just going to let the passage do the talking. We're going to dig down deep and really understand what it's saying and how it applies to our life. And so we're doing expository preaching as we look at the book of Romans together. And so what we're asking you to do is each week we want you to bring your Bible and a pen. The reason we want you to bring a Bible and a pen is so that you can take notes in your own Bible. So that you can write in the margins, so that you can highlight those memorable passages, so that you can put down your questions. Part of the reason I'm up here with a lectern this morning is because I'm going to be preaching from this thing, which is actually an, an, uh, a Bible that is an interleaved Bible, which means that every page in between is a blank page so that I can just write notes on it. And that's how I'm going to be preaching through Romans. It's just we're going to look at the text. That's going to be guiding us. That's going to be guiding our discussion. But also during the week, we want you reading through this uh, this uh, book together, which is why we gave you a bookmark when you walked in. This has all the passages that we're going to be studying in order, and we would ask that between weekends, you go ahead and read the passage for the week that's coming up. Spend time meditating on it. Reflect on it. And this morning, I want to invite you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab that pew Bible that's in front of you. The passage we're going to be looking at is on page 939 in that pew Bible, page 939. And if you're sitting there and you don't have a Bible, you don't own your own Bible, take that pew Bible with you. That is our gift to you. You can have it. We want you to have it. Go ahead and feel free to write in it, to mark it up, to highlight it. We'll, we'll get another one. We just want you to take that with you. Let that be your Bible that you study as we journey along together. So go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 17. And again, it's on page 939 in your pew Bible. First thing I want to do is I want to set up the background for the letter. We know that it was written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, he was one of the great leaders of the early church. He was a missionary. He had gone all around the Roman world planting churches. Uh, he was known as the Apostle to the Gentiles, which means that although he was of Jewish background, he saw it as his calling to bring the message of Jesus to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so he'd been traveling throughout the Roman Empire, planting churches, and he's writing this letter from uh, Corinth, where he had planted a church, and he's probably writing this letter um, sometime uh, in the winter of either 56 or 57 AD. And he'd been a missionary for 20 years up to this point, and he's writing to the church in Rome, and it's a church that he, had, that he personally had not planted. It's actually a church that he had, never, he had yet to even visit. He'd never been there. He'd never been to Rome. He'd never met the people in this church before. And so he's writing a letter of introduction. And having had 20 years as a missionary, he wants to, he wants to share with them, this is my basic message. And so he takes 20 years of reflection on the gospel, 20 years of having to preach it and teach it, 20 years of having to live in light of it, and he's distilling it down into this letter of introduction so that they understand who he is and the message that he proclaims. But there's, uh, and uh, the other thing that we should know is how this letter gets to Rome. It's actually delivered on Paul's behalf by a friend of his. Her name is Phoebe. 
And this is what we learn about Phoebe from Romans 16, verse 1. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, deacon of the church at Sancray, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. And the reason this is worth mentioning is because there have been some who've charged Paul with being against women in leadership. But I don't know how you could read Romans 16.1 and think that. Because if Phoebe is the one who is carrying Paul's letter, it means that she has a very, very important responsibility. You see, in the ancient world, when you delivered a letter of introduction to someone uh, and it's a, a letter from someone they've never met before, it was the responsibility of the messenger not just to deliver the letter and to read the letter, but to actually be able to intelligently comment on the letter in, on behalf of the writer. Which means that she would have had to read the letter to Romans to the entire Roman church. And then afterwards, if they had questions for her about Paul and his ministry and his theology and his teaching, she would have been the one to answer all those questions and to address those issues. She was a leader in the early church, and she and Paul has entrusted her, of all people, with this vital letter. Just an important note as we understand not only who wrote it, but who delivered it and why it was so important. But we also need to understand a little bit about the background of the church that's receiving the letter and what their situation was. You see, um, early, before this letter was written, uh, Tiberius, uh, uh, sorry, Claudius ruled the Roman world. Emperor Claudius ruled the Roman world. And in AD 49, he had actually kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And Suetonius, in his life of Claudius, says that the reason why Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome was because they were constantly rioting at the instigation of Crestus. Now, it's interesting that that's what Suetonius says because many biblical scholars have looked at that and they've said, you know, that, that name, Crestus, we actually think that that is Suetonius's mispronunciation of Christ. That the reason that the Jews were rioting was because there was a Christian church that was growing in the city of Rome. And, so the, and the Jews didn't like this. They didn't like that the Christian church was growing. And so they started to have some debates and some arguments. And it eventually broke out into rioting. They were rioting against the church. But in the eyes of the Roman Empire, the, Christ, the, the Christian church was not separate from Judaism at this point. It was just seen as kind of like a sect within Judaism. And so Claudius, to kind of put an end to all the rioting, kicked out all the Jews, both those who were followers of Jesus and those who were not in AD 49. But we learn that after Claudius' death in AD 54, those Jewish Christians have now returned to Rome. But they've returned to Rome to find that their church has now been kind of taken over and is being run by Gentile Christians. By people who don't share their same cultural backgrounds, who don't worship in their language, who maybe are singing songs that are different from the songs that they sing. And it's, it would have been like you had a home church and you went away for a while and you come back and suddenly they're now worshiping in a new style. They're speaking and preaching and reading from scripture in a new language. They're doing things the way that, you, that weren't always done at home or what you're used to. And you can imagine that there's no small amount of cross-cultural discomfort between these two groups. Yes, they're all Christians, but there's a big cultural divide between them. And so the question is, how is Paul going to write to this church? What will his message be to them? 
Because on the one hand, he wants to meet them. He's heard about their faith. He has longed to meet this church that he has heard so much about. And yet he also knows that they are a church that's divided. So what will he speak on? And what Paul decides he's going to write on is he's going to write on the one thing by which they have unity, the one thing that makes them a single family of faith. He's going to dedicate his entire letter to talking about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Because he knows to a church divided that what he wants them to understand is what unites them, what brings them together, what their common mission is, what their common message is. And so he dedicates the rest of this letter to talking about the gospel. And what we find in Romans chapter 1 verses 1 to 17 is we encounter three things. First thing that we encounter is we learn what the gospel is. What the gospel is. The second thing that we learn is who the gospel is for. And the third thing that we're going to learn is how the gospel then shapes our lives. What the gospel is, who it's for, and how it shapes our lives. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and take a look at this text together. And we're going to begin with that question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? It may seem like a straightforward question, especially if you've been around church for any length of time. Maybe you were raised in church. But if I were to ask you, what is the gospel? I want you to state it in a sentence. How well could you do that? You know, I have the pleasure of confirming many young men and women. They go through confirmation. They have to do an interview with their pastor. And this is the question that I often ask them. I say, I want you to tell me what the gospel is and can you state it in a sentence? And to our youth's credit, many of them do a very, very good job. But oftentimes when I then talk to their parents or I talk to adults in the church and I say, so what is the gospel? Can you state it for me in a sentence? I get all kinds of funny responses. Uh, the gospel, yeah, that's a... Uh, the, it's the Bible, right? The Bible is the gospel? Well, no, not quite. Yeah, the gospel, it's about, it's about, uh, it's about God's, God's love. Yeah, God just loves me. God loves everybody. Well, you're getting warmer. But that's a little too generic. Oh, and one time I remember being on a college campus and actually meeting another college pastor, like a pastor who was running a, a student ministry, and I asked him, I said, what is the gospel? And he said, the gospel, yeah, it's a, a little hard to explain. It's a, well, basically, it's that God wants everybody to be good and to do good things all the time. Is that what the gospel is? See, there's an, an, there's an incredible amount of confusion both inside and outside the church about what exactly the gospel is. If you had to state it in a sentence, what would you say? And yet Paul opens his letter with one of the clearest, most beautiful articulations of the gospel I've ever heard. Listen to this beginning in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says that the gospel is nothing more and nothing less than the good news about Jesus Christ. That is the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. 
And that often when people say, well, okay, Pastor Nick, how would you state the gospel in a sentence? This is how I say it. I say the gospel is the good news is that God saves a broken world through Jesus Christ. God saves a broken world through Jesus Christ. You see, in Paul's mind, Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is God's rescue mission for a broken world. A world that is bound up by war, violence, selfishness, and greed. A world that finds itself constantly tearing itself apart as people battle against one another. A world that is plagued by disease and by famine and by natural disasters. We look at a world that is broken, and yet what God says is that I will make all things new through my Son. That Jesus Christ enters our world, that God becomes one of us in order to live with us, die for us, and rise again so that we might have forgiveness and life eternal. And that ultimately Christ will come again and when he does, all of creation will be made new. The gospel is nothing less than that God saves a broken world through Jesus Christ our Lord. And if you are to be a messenger, you have to be absolutely clear as to the message. That is the gospel. It's not about our moral performance. It's not about how we have to clean ourselves up in order to be accepted by God. It's not a warm, fuzzy hallmark card about how some God you've never met generically loves everybody. It is not a self-help manual so that you can feel good about your life. No, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ who enters a broken world to save it. That is what we believe. That is what we teach. That is what Paul proclaims. And he's going to spend the rest of his letter then spelling that out. Talking about just how God through Jesus saves a broken world. How through Jesus we are forgiven for our many faults and our many sins. How through Jesus he makes one new community of people, the church. How through Jesus those people are sent out with a message of salvation to the whole world and how one day, though all of creation groans and longs for the day when the sons of God will be revealed, Jesus will come again and there will be a resurrection from the dead and all things will be made new. Paul is going to spend the rest of Romans talking about the beauty of this message, but let's be clear as to what it is. The gospel, the good news, is that God saves a broken world through Jesus Christ. But then there's something else that we learn, and that we, that's, uh, that we learn who the gospel is for. Who is the gospel for? Here's how Paul puts it. Beginning in verse 5, he says that it's the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Quite simply, Paul says that the gospel is for everyone. That it's for every single person. That it's not just a gospel that's for people who've been raised in church. That it's not just uh, good news for those people who find it culturally relevant, but rather that the gospel is for every single human being in, throughout all of history. Every single person, regardless of what culture, race, or background you come from. That regardless of where you live, what you've done, what your socioeconomic status is, what the color of your skin is, doesn't matter. It is for everybody because the gospel is universal good news. Because this entire world, 
is broken. Because as Paul will say a little later on, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but all are freely justified by his grace through Jesus Christ as a gift. The gospel, the good news is for everybody. We all need it. And God freely gives it to all. His desire is that everyone would know this good news, that everyone would come to saving faith. And so he gives a message that is for you and for me and for all people. And I think it's beautiful that Paul begins by saying that. He says that this is a gospel for all nations. And then he says to the Romans, to his readers, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. This church, which does have an issue with a cultural divide, this cross-cultural issue that's separating the Jewish believers from the Gentile believers, Paul says, remember who you are. You have received the good news of Jesus Christ, and that makes you family. That makes you brothers and sisters. Do not let these things divide you, but you are one through Jesus Christ. Furthermore, what he says, he says, and you, along with me, now have a mission so that more people will know. That's really the reason why he's going to Rome. It's not just to introduce himself to the Roman church, but it's also because he desires that they would partner with him in spreading that gospel. In fact, a little later on in Romans uh, chapter 15, verse 28, Paul says that he desires to go all the way to Spain, to plant churches in Spain, but he says, I want to go to Spain via you. I want you, the Roman church, to help support me as we go together to plant more churches and to reach more people with the good news. In fact, that's why he says a little bit later on in verse 11 and following, he says, I long to see you so that I may impart uh, to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. For I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul says, we have a common mission together and I need your help. Our mission as the people of God is to ensure that more people hear this good news. Our mission in the world is to go out and to tell them so that they might believe, so that they might know the, of the love that God has for them in Christ Jesus our Lord. And again, I think that this is worth pausing and thinking about. It's relevant for us today because we have to ask ourselves the question, when was the last time I got involved in that mission to the world? When was the last time I prayed for people in my life who don't yet know Jesus, that they would come to faith? When was the last time I actually had a spiritual conversation with a friend of mine who doesn't yet believe and just asked them what they believe and shared a little bit about the hope that I have in Christ? When was the last time you were willing to financially contribute to send a missionary abroad? That you were willing to give of your own resources and your own money to plant new churches? When was the last time you were willing to go, to cross oceans and seas, to move to a new community or to a new country for the sake of the people there, hearing that God loves them and that he has saved them through Christ Jesus? These are important questions because this is the motivation and the heart of Paul. 
This is his desire is that more people would know the good news. And so we go as the church together that they might hear it. This is part of the reason why, beginning in June, we are kicking off something we're calling the Immeasurably More campaign. The reason we're doing this as a church is because we have a five-year strategic plan. But it's these five years that we believe are going to set us up for the next 20 beyond it. Because over the next five years, what we are going to be doing as a church is we are going to be refocusing and realigning everything that we do around that great commission, that call to go and make disciples of all nations. We are going to be doing things like raising funds so that we can pay down debt, so that we can upgrade our facilities, so that these four locations that we have do indeed become places of hospitality and welcome and sending in their communities. We're going to be refocusing ourselves as staff, seeing how we can realign ourselves as a staff team around that calling to make more disciples, to reach more people with the good news. We're going to be raising funds to then set ourselves up for starting new churches and looking ahead to what God has for us. Over the next five years, we are basically saying we believe God is calling us to do immeasurably more because he wants to do immeasurably more through us. That God wants us to reach more people with the good news. And because he is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, we are going to follow him where he leads in that missionary calling as a congregation, as a community of faith. Again, there's going to be more details about how this is all going to kick off and what's involved. I'll be telling you about it later on in the service, but right here, right now, I think the invitation from Romans is, when was the last time you got involved in that mission? And to use this season now as we get clear on the message and clear on its calling, who it's for, that we would go with that message to all people. The gospel is for everyone and we are called to take it to all people. But third and finally, what we also learn is how the gospel is supposed to shape our lives. Because many people will say, well, it's great. You know, God forgives me and he loves me through Jesus. I'm saved, so now I can do whatever I want. But Paul says later on in the book of Romans, he says, by no means. He says, and in fact, the gospel is supposed to prompt a life of response. And specifically what that life of response, he says very clearly in verse 17. He says, for in the, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He says, because we've been declared righteous by God through Jesus Christ, we are now called to live by that faith. What is faith? People often say faith is, well, belief. But that's not actually what faith is. Faith is not simply being able to get the right answers on some Bible trivia questions. Faith is not simply being able to recite the Apostles' Creed because it was drilled into your head during confirmation. It's not simply about the knowledge that you have up here. Rather, faith is trust. That when Paul defines what faith is and what a life of faithfulness looks like, it's trust in God and what he has already done for you. That when I look at Jesus Christ and I see that God was willing to lay down everything for me, that he was willing to come into the world to save me, that he died for me to forgive me, that he rose again to new life and tells me that my future is certain, that I have the hope of eternity. 
then what is the proper response then other than to give my entire life back to him? That as the God who gave everything to save me, my response is to say, I trust you with all that I have. And I am willing to go wherever you lead because I believe that if you have called me, you will go with me. That if there's a step of faith that you've asked me to take, you will provide a way. And that all things that you ask me to do are indeed for my good. The righteous shall live by faith. Trust in God and what he's done. A trust that then bears fruit in our lives as we follow him wherever he leads. Again, Paul is going to talk about this as we go through Romans in greater detail. But right here at the outset, in just these first 17 verses, we get a beautiful illustration of where the rest of the letter is going to go. It's a letter that's grounded in the truth of the gospel. That God saves a broken world through Jesus Christ. That this is a message that is for everyone. You, me, and all the nations. That it's meant to cultivate, that it's meant to give birth to a life of faith and trust. And is the reason why Paul says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That is the heartbeat of this message. That is the heartbeat of this letter. That is the heartbeat of our faith. That the good news of Jesus Christ is God's power of salvation for everyone who believes. And it is because of that that we say thanks be to God. And then we go with that good news to a world that desperately needs to hear it. God's power of salvation to us, to you, and to me. It's in thanksgiving that we say, Amen, may it be so.